Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, September 26, 2011. Gate swinging today. Got my boxing gloves on. Wait, wait, wait a second. I'm a pirate. Uh, I mean, I got my scabbard out. <laughs> oh man, ruined my own brand marketing metaphor. Uh, I have to go back to leadership school. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, Contrary to popular cultural opinion, uh, uh, doctrine matters. It it matters a lot because uh, God's Word says that it does. Um, Pastors are encouraged, in fact, ordered by God's Word to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Um, We are to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, which means that there are disobedient thoughts running around out there. And uh, it's this is stuff that has to be taken care of internally within the church, uh, you know. And uh, and then to the world, we proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Uh, Cast the net of the gospel, if you would, and uh, and bring the fish in and let God clean them up. Anyway, um, I'm looking at the list today. I'm looking at the list today and going. You know, um, there's so many things to cover, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to really do a real monologue the way I've done monologues in the, in, you know, for other episodes. That's okay. You know, if, you're, if you're a regular Fighting for the Faith podcast listener, then you, you, know, you, you go, oh, well, you know, Rosebro, you always just talk too much anyway. So, <laughs> and I can say, well, I hear you. By the way, I just want to let everybody know that this is going to be a, a particularly painful uh, football season for uh, those of us uh, living in, in and around um, Indiana, Indianapolis area. Uh, as of last night, the uh, Colts have now lost their first three games of the season, although they really <laughs> they really put in a good fight last night. I, th- I, I got to tell you, my wife is like a football fanatic. Um usually it's the guys in the relationship that are like, you know, super focused and like distant during football games and things like that. That's, that's not me actually. That's my wife. And, uh, you know, (laughs) very, very dedicated, uh, football, uh, fan of the, uh, Indianapolis Colts. And, uh, and I, I was fully expecting last night, just completely expecting last night that, 
the Indianapolis Colts were just going to be slaughtered by the uh, the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, and it turned into a fantastic battle, fantastic game. And I mean, I wasn't even able to multitask. I had to keep both eyes on the television and and watch this uh, thing unfold. And uh, but we still lost. So. Just want to let you all know that it's going to be a difficult football season, and it, it's been a painful baseball season. The Dodgers have just put in an absolutely mediocre performance this year, and um, um, I'm thinking about defecting and becoming a Yankees fan or something. <laughs> just, ah. <laughs> I just, I, I, I find that um, being a sports fan is a little bit easier uh, psychologically. Uh, when your team is doing really well. Just something that I've noticed. But uh, anyway, and it has nothing to do with our program today. And I, I know you're sitting there going, well, Chris, you said you weren't going to do a monologue. I know, but I'm doing stream of consciousness now. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. What I wanted to do today. Um, boy, um, what I'm going to spend a little bit of time playing some audio sound bites. From a guy who's not afraid to openly embrace the word of faith heresy, and that would be Jesse Duplantis. And I want you to hear how he uses the verses that um, uh, that Robert Morris has been using in in uh, the sermon reviews that we've been um, doing of Robert Morris. Uh, reason being because Robert Morris is of the same species of heretic as uh, Jesse Duplantis. You know, now, granted, his stripes might be a little bit faded or not quite as brilliant as uh, Jesse Duplantis's heretical feathers are. But uh, the point is, is that um, these these two are, uh, they are the same species. And so you're going to hear that today. And uh, we got an announcement from, uh, oh, man. Uh, from the folks who are responsible for the Elephant in the Room conference, uh, Elephant in the Room 2 has been announced, and uh, four of the speakers have been announced. Uh, they include uh, yeah, James McDonald, no surprise, Mark Driscoll, no surprise, Mark Dever, okay, that's interesting, and then speaker number four, T.D. Jakes. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time um, basically examining the T.D. Jakes angle of this because... I'm going to basically just throw down. That's probably the way, the best way I can put it. And uh, I, I have a prediction as to what's going to happen based upon James McDonald's recent behavior and his past performance at the Elephant in the Room conference. And uh, we'll talk about that. Um, Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog has weighed in uh, regarding uh, Perry Noble's conflicting stories, so to speak. And he, uh, the, at the Pyromaniacs blog, um, Phil Johnson wrote a piece called Highway to Hell, and he, I think he makes a good point, and so I'm going <clears> to <throat> take a look at that. We've got news about Rob Bell uh, resigning as uh, the, one of the teaching pastors there at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, I'm going to make a prediction. Uh, I'm going to make a prediction regarding uh, Rob Bell's uh, change of direction, uh, his change of vocation, if you would. And uh, and then we'll uh, going into the second hour, coming out of the first hour, going into the second hour, going to point out the fact that, uh, I don't know if you all are aware, have I mentioned it? Stephen Furtick, at the end of this year, beginning of next year, is having his own, very own conference, and it's the Code Orange Leadership Conference, and uh, and so we're, we'll take a look at who's going to be speaking at that thing, and uh, I th- I've seen Twitter uh, traffic that suggests that T.D. Jakes is going to be one of the speakers at, uh, at, um, at Stephen Furtick's Code Orange 
Uh, but what I thought was hilarious, absolutely just a riot. And, and I, I remember uh, during uh, this year's Radicalis conference, I kind of pointed out the fact that Rick Warren seemed to be scraping the bottom of the uh, seeker-driven leadership barrel. And uh, the, the lineup included, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, basically all the second-string injured reserve um, seeker-driven leadership guys and uh, and uh, of course Furtick, you know he he was a little bit you know higher up than second string injured reserve i mean he's kind of one of those guys who's been recently coming off the bench and getting some game time and of course i think that Furtick will eventually ascend to the highest levels of seeker drivenism but um it, which is not a good thing but um what i thought was hilarious is is that um <laughs> when you look at the list of speakers one of them just is hilarious. And I, what I mean by that is it's just so awfully bad. I mean, it it, it just shows how anti-doctrinal and totally surfacy and banal the you know uh, guys like Furtick and Ed Young are. Uh, because here's the deal. Um, it's obvious that, um, that uh, Stephen Furtick was not able to convince Joel Osteen to come speak at his leadership conference. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, if, and, uh, you know, of course, I don't think Osteen goes anywhere where he can't headline. And, and so, uh, you know, I, no, I'm not sure. I'm not, I, I have not, I do not have insider information as to whether or not he had Joel Osteen on his list. But, um, have you ever been to New York City and uh, been approached by somebody selling cheap knockoffs of Gucci, uh, items and, you know, and designer wear and things like that? Uh, if you've ever been duped into actually purchasing a cheap knockoff of a designer label, uh, you you realize pretty quickly that um, that was a really that was regardless of how cheap it was, that was just money not well spent because when you get the cheap knockoff, um, the emphasis is on the word cheap. Um, I, I remember a guy that I worked with once who really had a a predilection for um, for watches. Uh, now, I, there, yeah. there are guys out there that, uh, you know, designer watches are like the thing, okay? Because if you think about it, when it comes to being a dude, um, dudes don't – there's not a lot of places where a dude can accessorize. And so um, there's a whole group of guys uh, out there who um, take the, the watch thing super ridiculously seriously and as a result of it, I mean, they they size up they size up people um, based upon the type of watch that they're wearing. Of course, my favorite, um, <clears throat> I find uh, my um, my Timex Expedition to you know to be just like a, a fantastic watch. He, he, see, he, remember the uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, and uh, John Candy had his Casio. Now I now I have a couple of decent watches. I I don't necessarily. I mean, I, if I have to w- dress up, I do have a watch that does something. You know, that looks somewhat nice. But anyway, the the point I was making is is that I I remember working with somebody who had who had a predilection for watches, and um, by the way, I think the term by the way is horologist. Somebody who, uh, so, who somebody's into horology. I think that's the term. I I'm, I'm doing this from memory. Anyway, and of course uh, he couldn't quite afford to get into even the most basic Rolex model and uh, and so but uh, not to be dissuaded because he felt that it was very important 
uh, that uh, he be able to flash a Rolex from time to time because, of course, there's certain guys out there who, you know, of course, judge another person based upon the watch that they're wearing. So um, he paid some guy 120 bucks for a Rolex knockoff. And he was so excited when he got this thing. 120 bucks for a Rolex, right? And, uh, you know, of course, he, 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 he came into my office and had, said, take a look at this thing. It looks just like the real thing. And I go, okay, if you kind of cross your eyes and, you know. And he goes, and look at this. Even the sweeping motion of the second hand is, is very much like the Rolex. I'm going, yeah, no, it doesn't look like the sweeping motion of the Rolex. But if you want to say that, you know, for, you know just do whatever. Make, make sure that if you're going to go on a sales call where somebody's going to judge you based upon the watch that you're wearing, that you uh, you don't stick it out so far that they could really truly examine the motion of the second hand. But anyway, point being this is that it was a cheap, and I mean cheap knockoff. And uh, we were playing golf uh, one day, and uh, I looked over at his wrist, and I go, dude, what's wrong with your wrist? It's it's green. And he goes, what, what, what? And he looked down at his wrist, and wouldn't you know it, that cheap metal, whatever it was that 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 faux Rolex was made out of, uh, had oxidized and turned his wrist a, like, Statue of Liberty green color. It it was just awful. It was disgusting, and he was so embarrassed. And he ended up never wearing the, that cheap Rolex again. And the, the point being, it was not a hundred and twenty dollars well spent. Um, th- so the, all of that is to just make this point, and and that is this: is that Stephen Furtick obviously was not able to um, to uh, get Joel Osteen to um, speak at his Code Orange um, conference. And so he's opted for the cheap Joel Osteen knockoff. <laughs> You're going, who's that? The answer, Kevin Gerald of the Champion Center up in Washington. And uh, <laughs> well, in fact, just in honor of uh, <laughs> Stephen Furtick's choice to uh, to bring in a cheap Joel Osteen knockoff to his Code Orange. <laughs> he should call it Code Green. Anyway, to his Code Orange uh, conference, uh, we'll be reviewing a, a Kevin Gerald sermon in hour number two today entitled 40 Days Extraordinary. That's the name of the sermon by Kevin Gerald, and uh, we picked that in honor of <laughs> the announcement that Kevin Gerald will be one of the speakers at <laughs> Furtick's conference. I cannot believe that any of these guys are taking somebody as obvious of a of a cheap Joel Osteen knockoff as Kevin Gerald is that they would take him seriously and want to feature him at a leadership conference. Anyway, it just kind of shows you where that particular movement is. Okay, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And um, I do not um, have update music for, like, uh, the word faith heresy. I, that's something I would have to spend a little bit of time thinking about. But uh, if you have ideas as to what you think I might consider playing as far as music when I segue to talk about word faith heretics, um, I, I then I, you know, I'm open to your suggestions. And some of you all, uh, listeners to Fighting for the Faith, have come up with literally some of the best, the absolute best ideas uh, for uh, you know for music to uh, to introduce different segments here at Fighting for the Faith, but. Here is Jesse Duplantis, and I want you to hear how he uses that that verse ripped out of context from Proverbs um, about death and life being in the power of the tongue. Well, uh, Jesse Duplantis, uh, one of the premier um, 
uh, a a list word faith televangelists and heretics out there. Uh, he's um, well, he's got his own spin on that particular verse. Uh, here he is. Uh, listen and tell me what you think. I'm, I'm gonna say something. Gonna knock your lights off. God has the power to take life, but He can't. He got the power to do it, but He won't. So God has the power to take life, but He He can't. Or he's got the power to do it, but he won't. Okay. How are you getting this from the Bible, Jesse? Watch this one. He's bound. He can't. He says death and life is in the power of whose tongue? Yours. You ready for this? You want something that'll knock your lights off? You choose when you live. You choose when you die. Death and life's in the power of your tongue. Not God's. Now he's got the power. But he will not exercise that because you are a speaking spirit. So he says, speak life. He even tells him, choose life. It's death and blessing, man. Let me help you out. Let me help you. Life. So uh, Jesse Duplantis basically saying that uh, God himself is bound because he created man as speaking spirits. And since that proverb says that death and life are in the power of the tongue, that means that how you live or when you live and when you die, it's up to you and you need to declare that with your tongue. Weird, huh? Yeah, that's some crazy stuff. Isn't it weird that uh, we've heard some, not quite that extreme, but similar concepts using that verse out of context from Robert Morris? Um, yeah, there's more. Um, I, I want you to hear uh, what uh, Jesse Duplantis does with this speaking spirit thing uh, and his handling of the text of Genesis. And again, it's just kind of to show that there's a similarity between the uh, A-list word of faith heretics like uh, Jesse Duplantis and um, guys like Robert Morris. We continue. Here, here, here's Jesse Duplantis talking about Adam. Um, uh, breathed life into animals, not God. It was Adam who did it. Yeah, listen to this. Are you ready for this? But God didn't quit forming stuff out the dust. He created all kinds of animals, but he didn't know what it was. What is that? I have no idea what that is. Artists do that all the time. What am I trying? What's coming out of me? I can tell y'all don't believe me. Look at y'all going. You, you want me to prove it? How many of y'all want me to prove it to you? God made animals and didn't have that foggiest idea what they were. You want me to prove it to you? So God made the animals and didn't know what they were. God made them, but he didn't know what they were. Hmm, okay. Tell me the book of Genesis chapter 2. I'll show you something. You think I'm joking? I'll show you something right now. Oh, Lord, let me finish this tonight. If you get ready, if you finish before I do, you can go home. Let, <laughs> let me finish this real quick. Genesis chapter 2. God made a horse and didn't have that foggiest idea what a horse was. Made a horse out the dirt, standing there like a mannequin. Look at me, like it. Had no idea what it was. He just sculptured it. You don't believe me? I'll reprove it to you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them. <clears throat> By the way, this is not hard to refute. All you got to do is read the, the really the opening chapter of Genesis where it talks about the six days of creation. Adam wasn't created until the sixth day. So basically we've got to believe, if, if we're going to believe this, we've got to believe that, well, when God made the, um, well, the, the teeming fishes and all the plants and all that kind of stuff, that basically he made them inanimate until... 
um, until Adam came along. But the, the scriptures say nothing of the sort. This is super easy to refute. All you got to do is read Genesis 1 in context, and none of this makes any sense. But the part I really want to get to is just ahead here. Notice what he says about speaking spirits. Pay close attention because, again, Jesse Duplantis is one of the premier word-faith heretics out there. And uh, his theology regarding speaking spirits, well, I, again, I'm trying to point out the fact that it's weird that his theology isn't any different than Robert Morris's. So pay attention to what he says about Adam being a speaking spirit, and then I'll show you what Robert Morris, or remind you what Robert Morris said, almost the, the identical same thing. Look at me, look at me. He didn't walk them. He didn't fly them. He brought them. Watch me. Pick it up. Bring it over there. He brought them. Watch this. Unto Adam to see what he would call them. He didn't know what it was. He just made something. He said, what do you think that is, Adam? Adam's a speaking spirit. He said, that's a horse. (laughs) Hey, Adam, do you know that they were not alive when he brought them? He didn't walk them. He brought them. They were just like Adam was. Adam was creating the image of God. He was a speaking spirit like God is. Let me... So there's Jesse Duplantis telling us that, um, uh, talking about Adam being made a speaking spirit. Jesse Duplantis, one of the premier um, word faith heretics and uh, televangelists out there, um, He's well. It's kind of weird to me that uh, this theology that Jesse Duplantis holds, like I've been pointing out, is exactly the same theology that Robert Morris holds. Now, remember when uh, I play, I reviewed uh, uh, Robert Morris's sermon, "The Wealth of a Word." Yeah, he said these exact. Well, he actually spoke this exact theology. Almost the same words, same analogy, same everything. This is the same theology. Here, here's Robert Morris again talking about. Adam being made a speaking spirit. And life are in the power of the tongue. One of the most amazing verses in the Bible. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. The reason is, is because we were created in the image of a creative speaking God. And anytime God wanted something, he spoke it. You go back to Genesis 1, and these words you'll see over and over again. Then God said, then God said, then God said. Anytime he wanted something, he spoke it. It never says, then God waved his hand. He never created by waving his hand. The only way he created anything and everything he created was by speaking. When he wanted light, he spoke it. When he wanted life, he spoke it. Whatever he wanted, he spoke And we were created in his image. The Bible says he breathed in us and we became a living soul. Living souls. Let me give you a paraphrase of that. We became speaking spirits. There you go. There's that speaking spirit thing again. And, uh, well, why is it that Robert Morris, that his theology sounds exactly like the same theology we hear from word faith guys like Jesse Duplantis? We continue. Show you. Let me just show you. If you don't believe me, watch this. This will bless you. Watch it. And, and out of the ground, verse 19, Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every what? 
living. They weren't alive. They were just like him, falling out of the dust to the ground. And God looked at Adam and said, speak, spirit. What you going to call that? That's a horse. He brought them. He didn't walk them. He didn't fly them. He brought them. He picked them up and brought them. And he named 500,000 species. And life came into them. So apparently Adam uh, breathed life into the animals just by naming them. Now, the text doesn't say that. He's isogeting. But uh, there's a little bit more to this. Let me um, see if I can point out the nature of Adam. How did Adam become so powerful to be able to do such a thing with his mouth, with his tongue? Remember, life and death are in the power of the tongue. That's the primary text, the center text of the Word Faith Heresy. But here's uh, Jesse Duplantis talking a little bit more about Adam's nature. Now, let me say this. When you understand that, you'll understand what a speaking spirit is. Mm, can I get into that? Yeah, Lord. Now, we've been dealing a lot with that, but I got some revelation in the speaking spirit. God said, let us make man. He breathed in the nostrils, and man became a living soul. Let me that Genesis 2, 7. Actually, in the Hebrew, said that man became a speaking spirit. Speak spirit. What is God? A speaking spirit. Uh, a speaking spirit. So he's taking the word living in Hebrew and turning it into speaking. Apparently, Adam was made a speaking spirit hmm why do i feel like jesse duplantis probably doesn't know hebrew i don't understand what adam you ever thought what adam looked like when god formed his body out of the dust to the ground he was a gray lifeless mass of dirt if you look in the original hebrew god formed him out of one block of dirt uh, a big beautiful white piece of marble was given to michelangelo and he created the la pieta it's in the Vatican. I was in the Vatican. Oh, the Lord blessed me the other day. The Pope was there. So I got to go to one of the Pope's services. It was great. I thought, Lord, I got to know the Pope's going to be here. <laughs> I was great. Man, if I go over to God, the Pope's here. I said, Kathy, the Pope's here. She said, man, the Lord blessed us, Jess. So we saw him in person, listened to him talk. Seemed like a sweet, precious man. All the cardinals there, you know. I think the other one's in red. But he's in white. The other one's in black. A couple of purple, a little lavender, but the white and the red is where the power is. But so all, when they gave Michelangelo, and if you, anybody ever been to the Vatican? Have you seen the La Pieta? Is that amazing? It looks like Mary's, Jesus, it's marble. It, it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. It, it's priceless. Okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause right here and just point something out here, <clears throat> considering that I have studied biblical languages. Know something a little bit about Hebrew, too. Um, the uh, the Hebrew here, uh, by the way, uh, Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That's, uh, that, that's, uh, uh, that's actually a pretty decent uh, translation. But I want to point something out here. He said that the man became a speaking spirit. And my question is, where did he get that idea from? Because... In the Hebrew, uh, it doesn't say speaking spirit. It says living being. Uh, and the word for living, by the way, there is uh, is he, and it means living, alive, with an implication that life has movement and vigor. Living meat is raw meat. Living water is fresh, running water. Nothing there about speaking. Uh, nothing in there about the uh, about speaking. That's not what that word is about. And uh, and then nefesh is being. I mean, a, a living, living being. 
So when he says that the, the Hebrew says that uh, God made them a speaking spirit, it doesn't say that at all. He's just making stuff up. But I'm sure you figured that out already. But let's continue with his La Pieta story because we're going to talk a little. He's going to tell us a little bit about the nature of Adam. And I want you to hear this because this is from a guy who's who's not ashamed of his word faith heresy and uh, has no problem preaching it straight. Robert Morris, on the other hand, you can tell he believes this stuff, but uh, he doesn't quite preach it straight because he doesn't want to be necessarily thrown into that mix. He wants to be more in the mainstream of American evangelicalism. Listen in. They asked him how he did it. Oh, he said, oh, simple. I just took away the excess. That's a speaking spirit. Speak, spirit. It took only the anointing of God to do that. Now watch this. When he created Adam, you know what Adam looked like? He was a mannequin. He was just dirt. That's what he was. Nothing in him. Like a mannequin. Formed out of dust. God took him by the nose and did this. He didn't breathe in his mouth. Breathed in his nostrils. If he'd have breathed in his mouth, it'd have been CPR. Come on, Adam. Come on, Adam. He wasn't trying to get him to breathe. He was giving him breath of life. And Adam did this. Came alive. And God said, speak, spirit. Created the express image of God. Okay, here's Robert Morris saying the same thing. Because we were created in the image of a creative speaking God. And anytime God wanted something, he spoke it. You go back to Genesis 1 and these words you'll see over and over again. Then God said, then God said, then God said. Anytime he wanted something, he spoke it. It never says, then God waved his hand. He never created by waving his hand. The only way he created anything and everything he created was by speaking. When he wanted light, he spoke it. When he wanted life, he spoke it. Whatever he wanted, he spoke. And we were created in his image. The Bible says he breathed into us and we became a living soul. Living souls. Let me give you a paraphrase of that. We became speaking spirits. Here's Jesse Duplantis again. Because see, mankind is a speaking spirit. Do you know we're the only species on the earth that can destroy it? Only a spirit can destroy this planet. A gorilla can't. So you didn't evolve from one. A whale can't. A lion can't. An elephant can't. A giraffe can't. A leopard can't. It can't have. No animal can destroy this planet. Not even the dinosaurs. But a man can. Because he's been given dominion over all the works of God. Because he's a speaking spirit. And here's Robert Morris again. We became speaking spirits. And back to Jesse Duplantis. That's why God said, if you would say to that mountain, say something, boy, speak, spirit. And that was Adam, like a, like a mannequin. And when God breathed him, he could have created the whole race, but he didn't. He made two women, a, two man, a man and a woman, made two people and said, y'all create. Yeah, that's just kind of, uh, that's the uh, word faith heresy uh, uh, preached straight, if you would. And uh, again, the reason I bring this out is so that you can see the similarities between his theology and uh, Robert Morris's, because they are the same species. Just wanted you to hear it uh, for what it was. Anyway, 
Uh, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate christian radio we'll be taking your false doctrine now to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Zeitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Zeitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet Earth. Don't miss out on getting both Rabbi by Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural. For a donation of $25, shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Call or write today. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. 
right, we're back. Warning, if you disagree with what the Bible says regarding sound doctrine and it being important, you're not going to like this program. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six. Zero three eight. Okay, I again apologize, but I do not have uh, music chosen for updates regarding TD Jakes. But I get the feeling I'm going to need that too. So if you have any ideas along those lines as to what uh, I could uh, music I can segue into to segue into discussions regarding TD Jakes, I would appreciate it. Anyway, um, here's the deal: the uh, the Elephant in the Room conference, the round two, is on uh, January 25th of 2012. And uh, today it was announced that speaker number four for the event, uh, for this supposed controversial, you know, co- you know, uh, speaking to and, you know, blunt conversation that's supposed to take place, um, that uh, T.D. Jakes is going to be there. Now, um, I'm, I, let me read to you what it says at the Elephant Room Conference web- website. It says this, Speaker number four, T.D. Jakes. We are thrilled to announce that T.D. Jakes will be joining us at the Elephant Room number two. T.D. Jakes is a charismatic leader, visionary, provocative thinker, and entrepreneur who serves as senior pastor of the Potter's House, a global humanitarian organization, and 30,000-member church located in Dallas, Texas. Hmm, Okay. Named America's Best Preacher by Time Magazine, Jake's voice uh, reverberates from the world's most prominent stages. Uh, Through a nexus of charitable works, T.D. Jake's extends a hand of help to the needy, a heart of compassion to the hurting, and the message of empowerment to the oppressed and the disenfranchised. We are looking forward to some candid conversations with Bishop Jake's at the Elephant Room number two. Now, here's my prediction. I I hope I'm wrong. But uh, I think that what will probably happen is that uh, James McDonald or whoever sitting across the table from T.D. Jakes will steer into the conversation regarding what Jakes believes regarding the Trinity. By the way, on T.D. On Jakes' uh, church's website, you can find this if you type in T.D. Jakes Potter's House, go to their doctrinal statement. It says that God exists in three manifestations, three manifestations. That is classic modalism talk. Classic modalism talk. And uh, T.D. Jakes, I'm sorry, it's, it's flat out true. The guy is, is not, does not affirm the historic biblical doctrine of the Trinity. I would like to read for you a section of a, uh, of a fact sheet that was uh, published by uh, the Christian Research Institute uh, regarding T.D. Jakes' um, well, lack of subscription to the Trinity. Here's what it says. 
Um, a Protestant uh, state corrections chaplain told Christian Research Institute that one of the most popular TV evangelists at our institution is uh, T.D. Jakes. He concluded by asking for clarification of Jakes' position on the Trinity. CRI has received uh, emails sent by T.D. Jakes Ministries to people inquiring about that subject. One email response is that Bishop T.D. Jakes and the Potter's House of Dallas believe that there is one God who manifests himself in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have never denied the Trinity. We are disappointed that anyone would misunderstand or misrepresent us. The meaning of the term Trinity, according to historic Christianity, is that within the nature of the one God coexists three equal and eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. T.D. Jakes Ministries and Historic Christianity both use the word Trinity, but the meaning of the word appears to be different. Walter Martin, the late Walter Martin, taught us that we must scale the language barrier of the cults. We must recognize the reality that unless terms are defined, a semantic jungle will envelop us, making it difficult, if not impossible, to properly contrast Orthodox Christianity with teaching outside of it. On the T.D. Jakes Ministry website, an, uh, an older but still accessible version of their statement of faith reads, There is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect, and existing in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Their current doctrinal statement has been altered somewhat to read three dimensions of one God. And um, we believe in one God who is eternal in his existence, triune in his manifestations, being both Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and he is sovereign and absolute in his authority. The position taken by T.D. Jakes' ministries uh, remains, well, problematic. The problem lies in the word manifestation. Manifestation is a modalistic term often used by oneness Pentecostals. Modalism views Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as different modes of God's activity rather than three separate persons. Jakes was interviewed in August of 1998 by Living by the Word Ministries. Uh, this interview was aired on KKLA 99.5 FM in Los Angeles. During this interview, Jakes said, quote... We have one God, but he is Father in creation, Son in redemption, and Holy Spirit in regeneration. This wording is identical to Oneness Pentecostal's uh, view as described by David K. Bernard, pastor of New Life United Pentecostal Church, in his book, The Oneness of God. Quote, a popular explanation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that there is one God who has revealed, i.e. manifested himself as Father in creation, Son in Redemption, and Holy Ghost in Regeneration. In his interview with Living by the Word, Jakes also describes the Trinity as a complex issue, saying, you know, I'm not sure we can totally hold God to a numerical system. This statement is consistent with his book, Anointing Fall on Me, where he says, quote, The concept of Godhead is a mystery that has baffled Christians for years. With our limited minds, we try to comprehend a limitless God. How can we explain one God but three distinct manifestations? This idea also reflects Bernard's oneness Pentecostal views, quote, we cannot confine God to three or any number of specific roles and titles. Christian Research Institute uh, coordinator of research Sam Wall spoke over the telephone with Pastor Lawrence Robinson, director of ministry affairs, at the Potter's House, inquiring about their view of the Trinity. Robinson affirmed that Jakes denies 
the biblical position of the Trinity, at one point saying that the Roman Catholic Church introduced the concept of three gods. Robinson gave some modalistic illustrations of the Trinity and said that Jakes has always held this position. Twice after that, Wall emailed Pastor Robinson to confirm the content of their discussion. Robinson never responded. Wall noted in his email, should I not hear from you by email, I will assume that these statements by you are correct. In the 1998 Wall Street Journal journal article on Jakes, Lawrence Robinson speaks of knowing T.D. Jakes since he was a young man. According to T.D. Jakes Ministries' website, Elder Lawrence Robinson has been attached to the heart of T.D. Jakes' ministry since 1985 as a faithful partner. Jake's denial of the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity is further betrayed by his association with the higher ground, always abounding assembly. He is a leader and elected bishop of this group. CRI spoke with Elder Mike Pearson, an instructor at the Higher Ground Bible Institute. He confirmed that the assembly has a oneness view of the Trinity and that T.D. Jakes has been part of this association for about seven years. Now, this was published in 1999, so it's been longer than that. In order to appropriately discern and respond to modalism, it is vital for Christians to understand the Trinity as it is presented in the Bible. James White offers three suggestions. First, we need to do some major league education on what the doctrine actually teaches. In the second place, we have to impress on every believer the vital importance of understanding, accepting, and experiencing the truth that God has revealed himself to be triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Finally, we have to educate, not with arrogance or pride, but with a passion and fervor born of love for the truth. Concerned Christians need to voice their disapproval of television network ministries or publishers who tolerate poor theology just to mollify a larger audience. The Trinity is the primary truth of the New Testament theology. In his book, Oneness Pentecostals in the Trinity, former Oneness teacher Gregory Boyd convincingly argues that the denial that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternally distinct persons in the Godhead indirectly undermines the Christian view of God's character, God's revelation, and God's salvation by grace. Oneness believers beg to differ, as noted earlier, modalists, including T.D. Jakes, maintain the view of one God revealing himself in three manifestations. This view has been known throughout history by several different names. One of them is monalistic monarchianism, a movement which interpreted the Trinity as successive revelations of God, first as Father, then as Son, and finally as Holy Spirit. It began in the 3rd century. Modalistic monarchianism emphasized the unqualified intrinsic oneness of God and the full deity of Christ. Denver Seminary's Dr. Gordon Lewis offered this response to T.D. Jake's statement about God being triune in his manifestations. Quote, The revised statement on God, on God revives Sabellian modalism. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not merely three manifestations of one God in history, three different hats he wears. Whether it is called modalism, Sabellianism, oneness, or Jesus only, this view of the Trinity is heretical. As White observes, whatever its name might be, it's a denial of the Trinity based upon the denial of the distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It accepts the truth that there is only one God and that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are fully God, but it denies that, that the Bible differentiates between the persons. Okay, that's just one, one on this uh, CRI. Uh, if you go to equip.org and type in uh, concerns about the uh, the teachings of T.D. Jakes, you'll find this 
uh, article that was written back in 1999 from the Christian Research Journal uh, by uh, Jerry Buckner. Folks, plain and simple, T.D. Jakes denies the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And I understand that in the past, the Christianity Today has tried to clear this up. But the reality is, is that even in T.D. Jakes' you know, response to, uh, to this controversy, he has never, never repudiated his, uh, his language regarding the, um, the manifestations of God. And it's important to note that historically, people on staff with him at the Potter's House, while being formally interviewed, affirmed that T.D. Jakes denies the historic doctrine of the Trinity. So here's the deal. Here's my prediction, and again, I hope I'm wrong, but I think that uh, James McDonald is going to put on a good front and try to steer into uh, a discussion with T.D. Jakes regarding the doctrine of the Trinity, and that T.D. Jakes will baffle them because uh, he's good at using Trinitarian-ish type language, but James McDonald will not press him will not press him regarding the definitions of those terms. And at the end of it, what's going to happen is they're going to embrace T.D. Jakes as a Christian brother. Now, that's my prediction. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I absolutely hope I'm wrong. But here's what it comes down to. Unless James McDonald is willing to put the Athanasian Creed in front of T.D. Jakes and ask him to sign on to it, and basically say, if you, I will not believe that you believe the doctrine of the Trinity until you sign and say that you confirm and affirm the Athanasian Creed, which was written in, what, the 5th uh, century. Uh, let me read it for you, by the way. Uh, Athanasian Creed is, is one of the most fantastic uh, creeds of uh, the ancient church, and it was written against the Arian heresy. And it takes a little bit of time to read, but I want you to read this. I want you to hear it. Here's what it says. The Creed of Athanasius, written against the Arians, whoever desires to be saved must above all hold the Catholic faith, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic universal faith. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And the Catholic faith is this. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated, the Father infinite, the Son infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal, and yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just as there are not three uncreateds or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son of God is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so we are also prohibited by the Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father is not made nor created nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created but begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten but proceeding. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, 
not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-equal, so that in all things, as has been stated above, the Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity is to be worshipped. Therefore, whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. But it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is the right faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. He is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, and he is man, born from the substance of his mother in this age. Perfect God and perfect man, composed of a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not two, but one Christ. One, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again on the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their deeds. Those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into the eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Now, that's what the ancient church came up with to fight the those who were denying the doctrine of the Trinity, which is what the Bible reveals. So uh, here's the deal. Um, if James McDonald is not willing, if James McDonald will not get uh, T.D. Jakes to sign the Athanasian Creed as a correct biblical summary of what the Bible teaches regarding the nature of God, if T.D. Jakes does not subscribe to the, uh, the, uh, the Athanasian Creed, then he remains and proves himself to be a heretic. And if James McDonald doesn't carefully address this issue, and at the end of it, as a result of it, doesn't ha- rightly handle this, this, this topic, and ends up affirming T.D. Jakes as a Christian brother, despite the fact that he has flat out denied. And even to this day, go to the Potter's House website. Look what it says, that God has is basically revealed himself in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not the doctrine of the Trinity. That's modalism. That's the oneness Pentecostal heresy. So if, T, if uh, James McDonald at the end of the elephant room ends up embracing T.D. Jakes and says, oh, yeah, he's our Christian brother, despite the fact that he denies the doctrine of the Trinity and, uh, and doesn't take the time to be precise about it, the only, thing, the only way I would believe that uh, T.D. Jakes subscribes to the doctrine of the Trinity, believes it, is if he, he, if he signs on to the Athanasian Creed. If he won't, then he ain't. You, you get what I'm saying? Anyway. So, and uh, rumor is, is that T.D. Jakes is also going to be speaking at, um, at the uh, Code Orange Revival, um, which I think will have to be, well, the, well let, let's do this. I'll, I'll steal a little bit of time here uh, because uh, Kevin Gerald's sermon is actually pretty short. Uh, but uh, here, here, let's do this.
From the Christian Post, headline reads, Love Wins, author Rob Bell tells Mars Hill his departure is no surprise. All right, so uh, Rob Bell has announced his resignation as uh, the uh, co-teaching pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church. Let me read the story by Nicola Menzi from the Christian Post. Rob Bell, pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church in Michigan, stood before his 7,000-member congregation Sunday to discuss his departure from the ministry he founded more than 12 years ago. Telling Mars Hill Bible Church members that they would be fine, Bell spent much of his, of his half-hour sermon discussing the new calling he felt he had been placed, that had been placed on his life to share God's love in new ways, according uh, to ABC 13. The uh, new calling for his life involves moving his family to Los Angeles within the year to undertake several projects, which include penning more books and undertaking speaking engagements such as Fit to Smash Ice Tour in Canada in the United and in the United States. Bell, who is 41, also informed Mars, uh, the Mars Hill congregation that he would not be starting a new church. Um, according to congregates who posted their reactions on Twitter, Bell's remarks were very emotional. Quote, to be honest with you, I thought I would die here, but that's not really the right way to say it. Change is a form of loss, Bell said, according to Heidi Fenton. Anyway, so that's the deal. Rob Bell's leaving. He's going to move to Los Angeles, and he's going to write more books and engage and do more speaking engagements. Here's my prediction. Okay, now I, I this, you know, this is you know, say what you want about it, um, but uh, here's my prediction. Rob Bell went. Uh, I think I personally think that the reason why Rob Bell probably resigned from Mars Hill Bible Church is that he needs the uh, the freedom to be able to take his theology to its logical conclusions. And that would be tougher to do if he was still a teaching pastor in a, in a, in a church. And if anything, the, the controversy that erupted over his last book, Love Wins, uh, should tell him that uh, his uh, ten, tenure there at uh, Mars Hill Bible Church uh, was getting to be uh, on thin ice as a result of his attacks against the historic doctrine of hell. That being the case, I, I personally think that uh, Rob Bell, um, if you take his uh, his uh, leftward leaning, uh, shifting uh, pantheism, which is what he really is, he's a pantheist, and, and you know, and I mean, the books that he recommends in in all of his books are are written by uh, pretty prominent pantheists and Buddhists of all things. That I think that Rob Bell, I think we can expect to see in the next few years Rob Bell coming out with a book where he argues that homosexuality isn't a sin. And uh, I think he needs to not be uh, in a situation where he's accountable to a church body to be able to pull that off. So what do I think is going to happen? Rob Bell's going to move his family to Los Angeles, and in his next book, he's going to you know, take a hard steer to the left, and uh, we we should expect to see Rob Bell uh, continuing, uh, you know, basically, you know, drawing out the conclusions of his already leftward-leaning, uh, Bible-denying doctrines, and his own philosophy, and that we should see from him, um, you know, an affirmation of the homosexual lifestyle or things like that. That's my personal uh, prediction as to where this thing is going to go. So, that yeah, that's just what I think. Next, oh boy, there, you know, some stories we're just not going to be able to get to today, um, but. Um, Anyway, I did. I, I've already mentioned the fact that uh, that uh, Stephen Furtick, for his Code Orange conference slash revival uh, for the beginning of next year, it's going to be twelve days long. Uh, but uh, one of the guys he's invited is uh, cheap Joel Osteen knockoff 
uh, Kevin Gerald to uh, to be one of the speakers. And so what I thought I would do uh, for hour number two of Fighting for the Faith today, in honor of the announcement that Kevin Gerald <laughs> will be uh, one of the speakers at uh, Stephen Furtick's Code Orange Revival, we're going to do a Kevin Gerald sermon review so you can hear for yourself how he does the cheap knockoff of Joel Osteen. We've reviewed several Kevin Gerald things before here at Fighting for the Faith. So um, we're going to go into our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because all the letters of the Bible are red letters, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. We will be heading to Bellevue, Washington. Listen to um, the uh, cheap Joel Osteen knockoff, uh, Kevin Gerald. Let me uh, cue up the music, though, before we get into the sermon itself. The Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, uh, lecture <clears throat> yeah, uh, comes to us via the Champion Center in uh, Bellevue, Washington. Kevin Gerald presiding. 
Yeah, um, even though uh, he's technically a pastor, um, I don't find much evidence that supports that particular claim. Uh, today's sermon, uh, 40 Days to the Extraordinary, uh, that's the name of the sermon, and um, this is supposed to be a sermon about, uh, well, the, the book of Ephesians. Now, I, I want you to know that Kevin's going to get to the book of Ephesians. He's actually going to read maybe six or seven verses from chapter one. Uh, but what's really weird here is uh, how he handles the text and the emphasis that he puts on it. Um, my mentor, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, uses a phrase that makes the point very well. He talks about those who put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Yeah, this is an example of that. You're, you know, so I mean, the word emphasis is really still the word emphasis, but it's got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. He's going to read the biblical text, but the emphasis is, well, um, let's just say, about as me-centered as you can possibly be. And uh, I also would like to announce ahead of time that uh, you will be hearing a full-blown gospel nugget in today's sermon. So. You know, I know that uh, y'all look forward to hearing those from time to time from Seeker Driven guys. And uh, Kevin Gerald is a guy who, well, you know, like I've been pointing out, is a, a cheap imitation knockoff of Joel Osteen. In fact, even Kevin Gerald, like Joel Osteen, has his own creed that he starts his sermons with. And which doesn't make any sense, but um, tell you what, let's let him do the work here. Uh, without any further ado, uh, here is uh, Kevin Gerald's uh, supposed sermon-ish kind of thing on the first few verses of uh, the book of Ephesians, 40 Days to the Extraordinary. Uh, he here we go. Welcome to this podcast message from Kevin Gerald Communication. Resource yourself at kevingerald.tv and get equipped to live a successful Christian life. You'll find everything you need from books and videos to MP3 downloads, leadership tools, and more. Now let's get started. Just say with me, my heart's open. My mind's ready. This is the Kevin Gerald Creed. Ready. I want to receive God's Word for my life. Make me better God. Come on, make me better God. By your word, today, in Jesus' name, and everybody shout a great big amen. Okay, a little background on Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was, was home to one of the largest, fastest growing churches in Bible times. Believers were multiplying fast. I mean, people were getting saved every day. God was adding to the church. And they were baptizing people constantly. And it's weird that uh, the way he's describing the, you know, this is supposedly the introduction to uh, Paul's letter to the churches in Ephesus. And um, it's as if, uh, you know, Kevin Gerald really wants to make everybody understand that Ephesus is just like a growing megachurch, just like the Champion Center. And uh, how much do you want to bet that he is also going to try to make it sound like the Apostle Paul's gospel and message that he preached is just like the message that Caravan Gerald preaches? You know, like, you know, thinking positive, believing that you're extraordinary, you know, things like that. You know, kind of, you know, a cheap Joel Osteen knockoff kind of stuff. The message of Jesus was just 
spreading through the city. I mean, the, the, the church was rocking and rolling and alive with enthusiasm and excitement. And the Apostle Paul wrote to this group of believers in Ephesus, he wrote the book of Ephesians about 60 A.D., so the year 60 A.D., he intended for other churches to also read from these manuscripts uh, and, and for them to make copies for other churches, which was, by the way, there wasn't a Xerox machine, but they did make copies. In case you thought I didn't know what I was saying, they did duplicate, make copies, and spread these books of the Bible out. So, so he intended that, and we know that from the way he wrote the book, that it was intended for them and the entire church and also the church of all ages, which includes us today. The book of Ephesians is not about problems in the church. Can you say amen? amen. Can you say good? Yes. <laughs> it wasn't about problems in the church, although we still should read the other books that are written like Corinthians and Galatians because, you know, problems they had then we still have now. But I, I felt like as we were making this decision about the book of Ephesians, I thought that's kind of where we are, Champion Center, is that we don't have a lot of problems in our church. Um, thank God for that. Thank God for that. I think, you know, what's happened isn't... You know, this is just the most foreign and alien uh, introduction to the uh, epistle to Ephesians uh, that I've ever heard. You know, maybe I should counter this with a good study Bible intro. By the way, I um, even though I own a copy of the ESV study Bible, I'm still convinced the superior study Bible is the one that bears the name Lutheran study Bible. Um, I've, I've owned a lot of study Bibles in my life and, uh, I like both the ESV study Bible and the Lutheran study Bible. And I got to tell you, the Lutheran study Bible, uh, easily, uh, outmatches the ESV study Bible. But, uh, here's, uh, from the, uh, Lutheran study Bibles, you know, um, introduction to the, uh, uh, the epistle to the Ephesians. Here's what it says. Setting. Ephesus was well situated as a trade center with its harbor Access to the Caister River and uh, location close to the uh, Meander Valley. It was a free city famous for its temple to the Greek goddess Artemis and also for its thriving Jewish population, which enjoyed considerable privilege. Central issue. According to Acts chapter 18, verse uh, 18 through 20, Paul spent nearly three years with the Ephesian congregation, more time than with any other mission congregation he served. He first visited a group of disciples at Ephesus during his third missionary journey around A.D. 52 to 55. The depth of his relationship with the Ephesians shows through through in the uh, theological depth of his uh, pastoral letter and its liturgical character. The key problem Paul addresses is division between the congregation's Jewish and Gentiles members. So that's what Paul's trying to address here. Uh, so Kevin Gerald said there was no problems, yet... A good study Bible will tell you that uh, no, actually, there's a, there was some division, uh, ethnic division between the Jews and the Gentiles in the churches in Ephesus. Uh, the uh, study Bible continues. His opening prayer, written in the traditional Jewish uh, Barakah pattern, addresses 
the issue of unity and thanks God for his answer in Christ. Paul returns to the themes of unity, baptism, prayer repeatedly in the letter. And uh, after Paul wrote Ephesians in AD 60, he also sent Timothy to Ephesus as a leader because false doctrine afflicted the congregation. It eventually became a leading church in Asia Minor. According to the early Christian historian Eusebius, the apostle John settled in Ephesus for his final years of his ministry. Here's what Luther writes about uh, the, uh, the the letter to the uh, uh, Ephesians. Luther says, In this epistle, St. Paul teaches first what the gospel is, how it was predestined by God alone in eternity and earned and sent forth through Christ, so that all who believe on it become righteous, godly, living, saved men, and free from the law, sin, and death. This he does in the first three chapters. Then he teaches that false teachings... And the commandments of men are to be avoided so that we may remain true to one head, that's Jesus, and become sure and genuine and complete in Christ alone. For in him we have everything so that we need nothing beside him. This he does in chapter 4. Then he goes on to teach that we are to practice and prove our faith with good works. Avoid sin and fight with spiritual weapons against the devil so that through the cross we may be steadfast in hope. So I mean that's just you know the you know the opening there for uh, talk you know talking about what the uh, the letter to the Ephesians is all about and it's weird that Kevin Gerald's uh, description sounds so much different than what I find in just a good study bible hmm you know that and churches go through phases where there'll be a lot of challenges and people come along with attitudes, agendas, and it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to have conflict. And I just think that what's happened at Champion Center over the 20 plus years that we've been here is that enough good people who really just, they just really want to see God glorified. They want to see people get saved. They want to have a spirit of unity in the house, have come together so that when other stuff comes along, it just doesn't get much airtime. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get a foot. And people come and people actually go uh, and, and leave Champion Center because they came with a plan and, you know, an agenda and an attitude. And it, it makes you wonder if uh, the people he's saying came and went because they had an attitude, if those were like, you know, Christians who came to a church expecting it to be like a church and for them to hear about Christ and him crucified for our sins, for Kevin Gerald to rightly handle God's word and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and, and you know, rightly handle the biblical text and stuff like that. I wonder if that's the agenda that those uh, people came with to uh, the Champion Center. At Champion Center, you just kind of don't last if you cop an attitude. Right. Negativity doesn't sustain itself at Champion Center. And I'm thankful for that. I mean, thank God that there's enough faith-filled, positive people that when negativity comes around... Enough faith-filled, positive people that when negativity comes around... Hmm... So, in other words, uh, basically, it sounds to me like he's worshiping a positive uh, attitude. And a negative attitude would be one that has to truly, really, clearly emphasize sound doctrine and sin and, thing, you know, thorny things like that. 
and tries to get a foothold that the people of God who understand the power of, of being positive and, and trusting God and having a spirit of faith and unity, they just... No, those who <laughs> understand the power of being positive have a spirit of faith and unity. Doesn't sound like the same gospel to me. Again, um, Kevin Gerald is really... Yeah, yeah, he's the guy. He's the faux Rolex uh, version of uh, of Joel Osteen. I mean, he looks a lot like you know. It sounds a lot like the real thing, but there's certain things that are off and not quite as you know. You get what I'm saying? But uh, I I'm not saying Joel Osteen has any theological worth whatsoever. I'm just saying that he's a designer brand that everybody knows, and it seems to me like Kevin Gerald is uh, trying to imitate that brand. Let's reject that. And, and, you know, we don't reject people, but we reject attitudes people carry sometimes. And so, in likeness to the book of Ephesians, there's not that we have problems. A lot of problems. We're not perfect by any means. But it's not that we have church problems or big church conflict. But we do have something in common with the church at Ephesus in that what he is doing when he writes the book of Ephesians is that he is raising the church's awareness to their God-given value, and he's helping them to recognize that they're not ordinary. What? Uh, the book of the, the the letter to the Ephesian churches is to help them realize that they're not ordinary. Really, I can't wait for you to show us this from the text. And he speaks over them repeatedly, word pictures and power words to describe. Have you? I mean, this doesn't even sound anything remotely like the, uh, the Paul's letter to the churches in Ephesus, the epistle to the Ephesians. Um, I, I've read it, you know, so many times I've lost track. I've translated it multiple times from Greek into English. I don't recall any power words in this letter. What are you talking about? I to them, as you're going to see today as we get into it, who they are and what they've been called to and he he elevates them he challenges them to elevate their thinking about god and about themselves hmm so there's a big challenge in what what chapter is that in again where the paul has that big challenge to the folks there in ephesus to uh you know to think you know these high things about themselves yeah, I, 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 I don't recall any of that in uh, the letter to the Ephesians. And about this thing called the church. Perhaps one of the greatest threats to God's purpose is what I call ordinary thinking. Hmm, that's what you call it. Um, where'd you get that idea from? Because the Apostle Paul never talks about that horrible threat known as ordinary thinking. Now, I'm not in the letter to the Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Galatians, Romans, Corinthians, First uh, and Second Timothy, or Titus, um, or um, yeah, I, I um, or Philemon. Um, hmm. 
Weird. I don't recall it in any of his sermons in the synagogues on his missionary journeys recorded for us in the ordinary thing. That's what you call it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What? I don't recall any of this in the Bible. So don't you think you ought to be preaching what the Bible be teaching rather than making up your own stuff and kind of uh, trying to make it appear that that's what the Bible teaches? Yes. Ordinary talking. Ordinary living. It's so easy to think ordinary, talk ordinary, live ordinary, which then... You know, I just got a question for you. Um, Paul, in his uh, letter to uh, the Thessalonians, um, he, he says this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, partway through verse 10, says this. We urge you, brothers, to do this and, and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Don't you think that if the Apostle Paul bought into this theology that you know he's got to help people to not live an ordinary life, but an extraordinary life, that you know the ordinary is somehow an enemy of uh, of Christian theology and sound biblical doctrine and, and the central core message of the Bible. Don't you think that the Apostle Paul would have never instructed the folks there in Thess- Thessalonica to you know live quietly, mind their own affairs, work with their hands, you know, live an ordinary life? Huh? Then causes all of us to be ordinary. Amen. And to experience the ordinary. But we're not ordinary. We're not called to the ordinary. Hmm, got any passages that back that up? God lives outside the ordinary. Uh, well, you know, he is God, and that means he's a, a little bit different than you and I. I mean, he's omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful. Uh, you know, things like that. Um, hmm. Yeah, so it's hard to, you know, make you know, draw parallels between us and God, as if somehow the way God is, at least in his being, is somehow the, we're supposed to be that same thing. Um, yeah, this is getting weird by, weirder by the second. Can we talk? Yeah, I think we need to. I mean, somebody's got to straighten you out. How many of you would say, I don't want an ordinary life? No, actually, that's exactly what I would love to have. You know, if Adam and Eve hadn't have sinned and rebelled against God, I'm pretty sure that we would be the human race of uh, gardeners. I mean, you know, we, you know, would do ordinary things that God has, you know, ordained for us to do. Um... You know, and, and by the way, you know, God tells us to do things like, you know, to be good husbands and to be good wives and, you know, and for children to be obedient to their parents and, you know, respectful and and to honor their parents and that we're to, you know, and slaves. I mean, they're, they're told to obey their masters. And it's weird. It seems like Christ is like the um, the Lord and Savior of ordinary folks who do ordinary things and and then die ordinary deaths like everybody else, you know, does. Because that's, that's the ordinary thing that we all do. Um, uh, why is it that it sounds like you're twisting the book of Ephesians to somehow make it about us in such a way that we're supposed to have these delusions of grandeur? Oh, that's right. I forgot. That's because you're a cheap knockoff of Joel Osteen. 
Why do we feel that? Because God put that in us. And really, you got a passage that says that? Any verses that say that at all? And you know what? If you didn't raise your hand and you couldn't raise your hand, we're going to resurrect that today with God's help. Mm, like a Frankenstein monster, apparently. Because that, that isn't God's intention for any of us. Mm, yeah, despite the fact that God's word says you know, for us to do really kind of ordinary things. We don't want to have an ordinary summer. Yeah, I wouldn't want one of those. We want to have an extraordinary summer. Yeah, and if you don't get that, will you blame God or will your lack of faith? I mean, if, you're, if your summer turned out ordinary, I mean, do you have to repent of that? Do you need forgiveness for having ordinary summers? Is it, or is an ordinary summer punishment for not thinking extraordinary things about yourself? I, I'm confused by this theology. I want to encourage everyone who will to just go on a journey with us this summer. We're calling it 40 Days to the Extraordinary. This is what we're believing for. 40 Days of Surrender. Mm-hmm. Blah. 40 Days of Letting Go of the Ordinary in Your Life. 40 Days of Reaching for the Extraordinary. And you're going to preach through the book, the the letter to the Ephesians to pull this off? Can't wait to see what you do with the text. 40 days of refusing to let the place where you have been be the place where you will stay. Mm, again, that doesn't preach very well uh, in, in light of the fact that uh, the place where you have been is where the place you're going to stay. Uh, you know, for instance, let, you know, if I just go into my computerized Bible and um, and I type in slaves, okay, and I do a search in the New Testament, okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to search the New Testament for the word slaves and see what comes back, you know, in you know in this uh, Ephesians chapter six verse five: Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Hmm. Notice that the Apostle Paul didn't say. Well, okay, now listen, slaves. Where you are is not where you're going to be, so you don't need you don't focus on where you is, but where you need where you where you're going or what you know anything. Do you think slaves back then during the time of the Roman Empire they had you know, extraordinary summers, extraordinary seasons of their life? And by the way, Ephesians chapter six verse five does show up in the book of Ephesians, uh, which you're supposedly preaching through. I wonder what you would do with that text. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 22, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Could you, I mean, you know, I can't think of a, an occupation that any human being would ever have, um, or a vocation, if you would, that would have more uh, mundacity. Is, mun, is, is, is it mundacity, the, 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 the right way of taking the word mundane into... Anyway, if not, I've just made up a word. Maybe it's the correct word, but but I can't think of a of a of a vocation, you know, slave, uh, where there is there is more unextraordinariness uh, associated with that particular vocation um, than being a slave. Yeah. Um, so Paul doesn't call them to um, live an extraordinary life, but to uh, that the, the that it, they can know that it's a good work in the sight of God. Remember, we are created in Christ Jesus for good 
works. That's what Scripture tells us in, in the book of Ephesians, by the way, Ephesians chapter 2, which we'll, we probably will get to uh, here because I'm going to have to clean some stuff up before we even get into the text. But uh, Ephesians chapter 2, for we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you want to know what a good work is? If you are find yourself in the vocation of slave, if uh, you you have had to sell yourself into slavery in order to pay debts, or if you were captured during a war and then shipped behind enemy lines and sold into slavery, um, what does God say a good work for you to do is as a slave? Um, obey your earthly masters. There you go. It doesn't sound like you're going to be doing anything extraordinary except for slave labor. And yet, that's a good work. How do I know? Because God tells slaves to obey their masters. That's what a good work is for a slave. Hmm. Weird. I mean, Kevin Gerald's cheap knockoff of Joel Osteen's theology just is, you know, has just the right amount of me-centeredness and delusional uh, self-delusions of grandeur and greatness uh, and focusing on me, 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 and, um, hmm, not on what Christ has done, but on me, me, okay. The emphasis is on the wrong syllable. We continue. Forty days of saying, well, I got to this chapter, and somehow I got stuck, and I've been repeating this. There's another chapter. See, here's what I'll... God didn't mention any other chapter for those slaves. Why should we expect some kind of other chapter for us? Why is it that we can't... That, that, that you guys refuse to believe God's word regarding what a good work is? You know, a good work is being a good mom, being a good dad, being a great husband, a good wife, a, a good student, a good employee, a, a good slave. I mean, that's what a good work is. Why is it that you guys are rejecting all the clear teachings of the Word of God regarding what a good work is and, and somehow embracing oh, with well, this next chapter. It's the thing that I don't have. It's the thing that I've got to grasp for, the extraordinary, so that everybody will say, oh, look how blessed of God he is. Hmm. Work quietly with your hands. and mm-hmm. Yeah, none of that. I want everybody to understand as if God didn't have a unique plan for us this summer, we wouldn't be here. The fact that you are here is evidence that God has something in mind for you. Really? You got any passages that back that up? Maybe the reason why they're there is that uh, God is judging them and sending a delusion on them or something like that. I mean, how do you know that's not the case? Right now, right here... Somebody say, uh-huh. Boy, these people sure are obsessed with their self-importance, don't you think? Come on, you are not an accident. Come on, Pastor. You are not a coincidence. You might have been a surprise to your mom and dad. You might have. You, I mean, this is the most self-absorbed, self-obsessed, just unbelievable. <laughs> but you were not a surprise to God. When you showed up, God didn't go, oh, my goodness. Where'd you come from? No, no, no. God knew you from the foundation of the world. Right, good. That's good. 
All I mean, the way you're preaching it, it's as if now that we've shown up, we can just tell God to move aside. I mean, <laughs> the extraordinary has apparently arrived. All of your days, all of your days have been numbered. And it's like the GPS system in your car. If you've ever been around one, if you have one, what happens is that when you punch in and say, I want to go to this point, then it takes you there. And there's this little voice that talks you along. And so when you get off track, it might say something to you like, you know, turn left at the next street. Go back. So we have a heavenly GPS guiding us to the extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, self-absorbed me theology like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, just like, you know, the guy he's trying to imitate, Joel Osteen. To Highway Interstate 5. Next left, next right. It'll, it'll talk you back onto the track for where you said you want to go. So if you're a child of God and you said, I want God's will for my life, then guess what? There's a heavenly GPS system that's always working with you. Even when you get... I mean, how convenient. A heavenly GPS to make sure that I don't get lost on my journey to the extraordinary. Hmm. Wow, what a... Does your God resemble a genie? Um, does he live in a lamp? When you rub it, does he come out and say, What can I do for you, Master? Get off track. It's working with you to bring you back to the plan and to the purpose that God has for your life. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Yeah, now we're quoting Jeremiah 29, 11. Out of context again. Yeah, this is classic... Uh, misapplication of the text it's not about you go read it in context you realize it wasn't written to you the promises that were made weren't made to you plans to prosper you not to harm you plans to give you a hope and a future so 40 days to the extraordinary abundant life god has for us and i'm asking you to just make i mean this is a different gospel and i'll prove it to you the good news, according to Scripture, is clearly defined for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which says that uh, what I received I passed on as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the good news. That's the good news that Paul preached everywhere he went. Here's Kevin Gerald's so-called good news. God wants you to have an ex extraordinary life. All you've got to do is apply the right principles, have a positive attitude, and your life will be extraordinary. The biblical gospel teaches you that Christ died for your sins and you're saved from the wrath of God and from uh, basically being judged by him and sent to hell. Christ is suffering your penalty in your place on the cross. Now, see, that's not really what Kevin Gerald's really all about. No, no, we've got, we've got better news than that. You can have an extraordinary life. Hmm. Again, I, I'm curious how he gets this out of the book of Ephesians. Well, let's continue. Room in your heart for what God wants to do in you. I'm asking that all of us as a family would make room in our hearts for what God wants to do 
in us collectively to make room for God to correct us? Is that okay? He is. I hope you take that seriously and you listen to my sermon reviews of how bad the theology is here. He's our Heavenly Father. We do need correction. Yeah, yes, you do. A lot of it. To make room for him to correct us, to change us, to convict us. Of your false doctrine, your false gospel, you know, all that. Okay. So that he can elevate us. So that he can what? Elevate? 40 days. And we're praying that it all culminates in a great big celebration with friends around the world who are coming and people around the city. And if you have friends that go to other churches, I hope you'll invite them. Tell them what we're doing. Spread. So at the end of the 40 days of uh, To the Extraordinary, they're going to celebrate their extraordinariness with a big citywide celebration. Invite their friends so that everybody else can come and celebrate their extraordinariness. Have you are you familiar with the Greek character known as Narcissus? Just wondering if you've heard of him. Read the word. Help me out with this. Forty days of believing God for the extraordinary in our life, and then culminating it all with a big gathering at our TC 2010 conference, where we're believing God for not not nothing less than a miraculous, God breathed, extraordinary time for the people of God and for the church. A boy found an egg in the woods, and he took it home and played. Okay, now I, I got to point something out here. Um, this story about a boy finding an egg in the woods, mm, yeah, not found in the Book of Ephesians. In fact, you're not gonna find it anywhere in the Bible. This is kind of like preaching on Aesop's Fables. Um, I'm not even sure if this one's really in Aesop's Fables or not. It sounds like a takeoff of the story of the ugly, ugly duckling. Uh, but I assure you. You ain't going to find this anywhere in the Bible. Look it up. Yeah, you'll look long and hard. You can go from Genesis all the way to the book of Maps. You won't find this one in there. Placed it under a goose and it hatched. It was a freakish creature when it came out of the egg. Its unwebbed claw-like feet made it stumble as it tried to follow the little geese around. Its beak was not flat but it was pointed and twisted. He didn't fit in with the geese. Poor guy. Oh, this is so sad. And then one day, a giant eagle flew across the barnyard. He began to circle, and he came lower and lower until the little creature in the barnyard lifted his head up and stared at what was in the sky. Immediately, something in him identified with the eagle. And he began to hobble across the barnyard, flapping his wings. And then it happened. The wind picked him up and carried him. It carried him higher and higher out of the barnyard and into the blue sky. You see, what had happened is that this freakish, out-of-place creature had discovered who he was and what he was. 
Now, apparently the reason why he's telling this story is because you're supposed to think of yourself as this freakish creature who's really an eagle. You've got to discover your eagleness. See, that's what this is all about. Again, this is nothing but an ego boosting. And I, in, in the worst possible way, ego conceited, ego boosting, delusions of grandeur, self-focused, narcissistic story. And in fact, this is exactly 180 degrees opposite of the way scripture teaches us to be. Jesus himself says, the one who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Kevin Gerald, the way he's preaching, it's 180 degrees backwards from what Jesus taught. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Here, he's preaching, discover how important and extraordinary you are. Discover the eagle within inside of you, and then God will lift you up. This is actually um, satanic, what he's preaching. And I mean that in the deepest sense that you can possibly mean it. Because it is Satan, according to the prophet Isaiah, who said, I will exalt myself to the highest mountain. I will do this. I will do that. This is just me-focused narcissism, and this is exactly what caused Satan to fall from heaven. This is exactly what God judged him for. And don't you remember in the Garden of Eden, Satan's big temptation? Oh, no, 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 you will not die if you eat the fruit. For God knows that the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. Uh Uh-huh. You're not being brought to repentance and the forgiveness of your sins in this kind of preaching. No, you're taught to look inside of yourself and puff your chest out with pride and realize, I am an eagle and I can soar. This is not what the epistle to the Ephesians teaches. This is exactly the opposite message of what the scriptures teach. So, I mean, I can see why... um, uh, Stephen Furtick is inviting Kevin Gerald to, you know, to deliver a, a rip-rousing uh, Joel Osteen, a cheap Joel Osteen knockoff-ish type of um, lecture there at his um, Code Orange revival. And I, and I understand why. So that everybody there can have their egos puffed up and they can have smoke blown into their faces and think that they're being fed God's word, and in reality, um, they believe this message, it will damn them. And he had discovered that he was not a goose, but he was born an eagle. I want to help you like the Apostle Paul has tried to help all of us when he wrote the book of Ephesians. So that's what you think the book of Ephesians is about. Well, um, let's let's cut him off here, and let's let's actually spend a little bit of time in the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter one, verse one. We're going to read all of chapter one and maybe a third of the way of chapter two, just to start to get a sampling for what's really going on there in the book of Ephesians. Let's test it. Is the book of Ephesians all about the Apostle Paul giving us power words so that we can understand? that we're truly eagles so that we can embrace and celebrate and 
and get to that next level in our lives so that we can have and experience the extraordinary and not have to have the 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 basically the curse of ordinariness falling upon our heads no that we can reject that and submit to god in such a way that he will bless us with extra the extraordinary let's see um, again ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 we read paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god to the saints who are in ephesus and are faithful in christ jesus Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I'd like to point out, Paul here is reminding them of the gospel. And you'll notice that Jesus and, you know, that Jesus and God, you know, Jesus who is God, that are often the subject of the sentences. Part of good, sound biblical hermeneutics and rightly handling God's word requires you to just basically ask simple questions. What's the subject of the sentence? And what is the subject doing? You know, what's the action of the sentence and the verb, right? And you'll notice in, in this opening here that Paul is reminding them of all of the things that Christ has done predestined us, lavished us, redeemed us, purchased us, bought us, called us, has given us an inheritance. Notice it doesn't say has given us a wage. 
An inheritance is a gift given to somebody when somebody dies. And who is the one who has died for us? It's Christ. Salvation and eternal life and God's blessing are an inheritance given as a result of the death of Jesus. That's a right. That's some good theology there. But to, so here's you know, I mean again. So he is doing all of these things. You know, subject of the ver of the ne- of the sentence. And the verbs are the things he's doing. So that's who this is about. Now, chapter 2. Okay. I, so far, by the way, what's supremely missing in all of this? Oh, yeah. Thoughts of the extraordinary. Something, any, Nothing here about submitting so that you can apply particular principles so that you can go to that next level and get out of the ordinary rut that you're in and into the extraordinary. Nothing here about... Uh, ordinary thinking, that's for sure. Nothing here about ordinary thinking at all. Okay? Ephesians chapter 2. And you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Huh. Yeah, notice here, Paul isn't uh, appealing to the eagle within you, that you just need to realize that's what you are. No, it's in fact, it's quite the opposite. Paul is reminding the, the folks there in the churches in Ephesus that they were by nature dead in trespasses and sins, and like the rest of of mankind, they were by nature children of wrath. Nothing here about... Uh, the, Paul wasn't reminding them about the eagle inside of them. He was reminding them about the wretched sinner that they all were, and that flesh that we still deal with. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at, at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
Hmm. Interesting stuff. Great, great gospel stuff. And so if you're really going to talk about the right way to think about yourself, um, yeah, I don't see anything here about being extraordinary. Um, you need to think of yourself as at one time being dead in trespasses and sins. Unless, of course, you have not been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, because this letter is written to Christians. So if you're listening to me, and you don't trust Christ for your salvation, you are not repentant of your sins, this passage makes it clear, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You are dead, stone cold dead, and are by nature an object of God's wrath. Repent. Be forgiven. Salvation's a gift. It's not of works. It's all done by Christ. Repent. And trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is, is that I don't see anything that Kevin Gerald in this in long and narcissistic um, uh, introduction to the, the Paul's letter to the Ephesians, um, I don't see anything that he's pointing out at all. In fact... Yeah, no eagle story. In fact, the eagle story, the exact opposite is taught here in the book itself. Hmm. We continue. To discover who you are and discover your greatness so that you can find... Wow. (laughs) We didn't give you a couple seconds after hitting the play button. Discover your greatness. Did we hear any of that? In the opening chapters to the uh, in the epistle to the Ephesians, as for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the kingdom of yeah, um, the, oh, man. By nature, you were an object of God's wrath. Doesn't say anything about discovering your greatness. What book of Ephesians is he reading from? Find the extraordinary life and live the extraordinary life that God has for you. We don't want to get our identity from our surroundings or from the people around us or what others say about us. We got to understand that the truth about who we are is what God says about us. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. And God said you were dead in trespasses and sins. It sounds like you guys still are. With that in mind, open your Bible or look at the screen. And let's read the introduction, the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by... Now watch what he does. Now I'm, I'm going to give him credit for the fact that he's at least opening up the scriptures at this point, And he's going to be reading at least six, seven, eight verses. Okay, this is something you normally don't hear from... You know, never, you'd never hear Joel Osteen do it. So apparently, you know, this further explains why he's not quite at Joel Osteen status because uh, the cheap knockoff doesn't understand. You, you can't read entire biblical passages because it becomes even more difficult to make them jive with uh, Joel Osteen's theology. And, uh, yeah, you'll see what I'm saying here in a second. Uh, we continue. By the will of God to the saints of Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed 
us. Everybody say, blessed us. Okay, now this is an example. Remember at the beginning of the sermon, I warned you that you have to watch what he's doing here. Yes, he's reading the text, but he's putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Okay, and so here he's not focusing on what God has done. He's reading the text in such a way as to emphasize not the subject of the sentence, not the subject that runs the verbs in the sentences, but more or less kind of the direct object, if you would, grammatically. It just doesn't make any sense. In the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us. Everybody say chose us. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. You want to say it? He predestined. That's a great word, by the way. Predestined. He predestined. He predestined. I'm glad you like the word. Why don't you tell us what it means? us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us everybody say given us in the one he loves in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us With all wisdom and understanding, and he made known to us, he made known to us, he made known to us. He made known, known, known to us. Everybody shout us. The mystery of his will. Wow, again, the emphasis is totally on the wrong syllable. Us, us, us. Yet when I read the chapter in context, it was about Christ, Christ, Christ. He's literally robbing Christ of his glory. Literally trying to steal a passage that's about Christ and somehow make it about us. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now, that's the NIV version. It reads different in the King James. It reads slightly different wording-wise in the message and, and, and New Standard Version. I, you know, different. But here's what I did to kind of culminate it all. There are nine things said about us. Wow. So he counted up all the things that were said about us. Yeah, I can say this definitively. Everything that says about the things that about us, we're the recipients. We're not the doers. So the doer is the more important thing to focus on, the one who did the thing for us. That's unbelievable. I mean, is, is it, does this guy even see Jesus past his own nose? I'm sure he's in love with his own nose. That the Apostle Paul proclaims, I've got, I think, six or seven of them that are being put on the screen right now to just help you to kind of put it all together in your mind. That this is what he is speaking over the believers who are part of the church. And he's reminding them what God has done. Who, Who has done what God has done? So why don't you count up all the things that God has done rather than count up all the things that supposedly are about us? 
for us and who we are. Now, I know that a lot of times, guys, you deal with, and it sounds good, and I want to help you with this because I'm guilty of saying things like, you know, I'm nothing special, and I'm just, you know, uh, like anybody else. I'm, you know, I'm just an ordinary guy. And I think in right context, when you're trying to make a point, we all understand that verbiage. But I also think that there's a counter-truth that the Bible really emphasizes. And, and the book of Ephesians is going to be a great place for us to be reminded that this counter-truth declares that we're not ordinary. And that we're not... Really, it sounds like the extraordinary person in Ephesians 1 is Christ. He's the extraordinary one. How are you reading that in such a way that the the come you know the thing that you're coming away with is that we're somehow extraordinary? Unbelievable. We're not supposed to think of ourselves as ordinary, and that there's a danger in self-abasement. That actually, what sin has done for man is that it has lowered his ideas about who he is and has caused man oftentimes to forget that we're born in the image of God. Uh, No, we're not. See, here's the deal. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. Uh, And uh, that was uh, wrecked, trashed, if you would, uh, when they sinned and rebelled against God. We don't reflect God's image the way they did. In fact, not even close. And I mean, it's, it's like this guy doesn't even... I mean, over, over and over again, these guys keep going back to the image of God as if somehow we reflect that. Um, we reflect the image of God the way a, a cathedral in London did after being bombed out by the Nazis. What I mean by that is this. Okay, we've all seen pictures of World War II and, and uh, the battle of Britain, where, you know, night after night, day after day, the Nazis kept launching wave after wave of, of you know, sending attack after attack of airplanes, bombers, and, and fighters across the English Channel into London, in, into England, and they were bombing the the living daylights out of the folks living in London, okay? You, can, you get, you see, like, a, a, a picture, like a snapshot of this, in the opening to the uh, the movie uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So you got the bombers coming in, and what would happen is is that if you if you looked at the black and white photos, some of the buildings that got hit were historic churches. These were churches with stained glass windows, uh, wonderful uh, Gothic architecture, and you know, and th- and it just the it, before they were bombed out, they were beautiful, they were pristine, they were amazing. You walk into this, and you felt like you were walking into uh, you, you know, you were walking out of earth and somehow stepping foot into heaven. That's what the this architecture was designed to evoke inside of you, okay? But after the bomb would hit one of these churches, the stain, all the stained glass would be blown to bits. Uh, the the roof is gone. Um, uh, you know, anything that you know, I mean, it's, there would be a fire and everything. So here's the deal: the way you and I reflect the image of God is the same way that a bombed-out cathedral somehow reflects the glory of what it previously was before it was bombed out. Yeah, you can you can kind of catch glimpses of 
how magnificent a building it was before the bomb hit it. I mean, you pick up a piece of broken glass and see the color and the brilliance in it, and you go, I wonder what that was before it got bombed out. Because if you'd never seen it before, yeah, you have no concept. So, again, constantly going back to this image of God argument, it's it's actually a really, it's poorly argued, and it's false. It's false on its face because uh, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and now as a result of it, what does Ephesians 2 say? As for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked you know, and so the idea is is that by nature we don't reflect God's glory. We are instead are objects of God's wrath by nature, or as a result of our corrupted nature, and uh, we're you know, we're dead in trespasses and sins. So, you know, this argument that these guys constantly refer back to that somehow the you know that that we reflect the image of God. No, we don't. Not one of us reflects the image of God the way it. Uh, that like not even close to the way that Adam and Eve did. I mean, any little bits and shards of bombed out glass that you can kind of catch a glimpse of its glory, that's about all that's left. We are created in his likeness. We are the apple of his eye. That we No, we're not. I just read this in Ephesians chapter. Apple of his eye. Unbelievable. Again, let me read this. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The apple of his eye? Really? Um, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This argument is false on its face. I, I can't I wonder what he did with this passage when he got to it, now when he was preaching on it. We are VIPs, that the very hairs of our head are numbered, that there's not a moment that goes by that heaven doesn't know what's going on in each and every one of our lives, and that who we are really, 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 really matters. This is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. In heaven. I want to just take the risk that you'll understand what I mean when I say some of us need to get a kingdom swagger going on. Jesus said, the one who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. I never read in a single passage of scripture about the need for us to get a kingdom swagger. And some of us need to get our swagger back. Need to remember that even when we don't know what's going on, that we belong to a God who does. And, and when we don't know, we don't know about the future necessarily, we know the God who holds the future. And that there's a difference in arrogance and confidence. 
There's a difference in... Yeah, I, I'm not seeing the difference uh, being properly handled in this particular sermon. I, I don't know what this thing is. Sinful pride that separates itself into an independence from God and a confidence that declares that God is my help. He is the strength of my life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have been a... Me, me, I, I... Pointed and anointed from the foundation of the world. My days matter. My life counts. Yeah, I can see why Furtick would uh, want him at the, uh, want him there. I mean, even though he is really still a cheap knockoff of Joel Osteen. I mean, it sounds like uh, Kevin Gerald preaches the same man-centered, narcissistic pablum that uh, Stephen Furtick preaches. That even when we're going through things in our life, that we would not lose our swagger. By the way, this is the first service I said that, so <laughs> this just kind of came in the back door of my mind, and it's for for you guys at 11:30 here. Yeah, I'm glad you confess that because it's clear that it didn't burble up from the text of Scripture. Glad you pointed out that it came through your mind, and it's pretty clear that it came via your sinful mind, uh, because God's Word teaches nothing even remotely resembling this nonsense. In fact, quite the opposite of what it is that you're preaching here, Kevin. Hey, just get get it back, kind of get it back, to put your head up, and get your shoulders back, and if you're a child of God, to remember who you are, and remember what God has done for you. Yeah, it's hard to remember that stuff when I'm focused so much on myself. Care to remind me of all the things that God has done for me? That would be the proper emphasis on that text that you supposedly are preaching on. When it says that he has chose us, it means that before you were, he saw you. And he formed you for his family. When it says he predestined us, it means God has a plan and that your life is destined to glorify him and to bring him honor. And how does that happen? When it says that he redeemed us, it means that the penalty of your sin is paid in full. Now that, my friends, is a full-blown uh, gospel nugget. So we, we've got to do this. There it is, and there it went. In full. It means that you get up after you've eaten and you're full at the restaurant and you've enjoyed being at the table and you can walk out the door because God has picked up the tab. It's paid. No. That is the most miserable excuse for a gospel analogy that I ever heard in my life. And here's the reason why. Is because if you go to a restaurant and somebody picks up the tab for you, yeah, that's a that's a kind thing that they've done. Um, but here's the deal. Uh, somebody picks up the tab for you and you didn't expect it. You were expecting to pick up the tab yourself, which means you could pay for it. So this is not even an appropriate uh, illustration of the gospel. The reason being is because 
uh, that being the case, then it's assumed that you could have paid your own tab anyway. The gospel teaches that your debt to God as a result of your sin and rebellion against him is so high, so steep, so expensive that uh, it, it would literally be the entire you know, gross national product for a medium-sized country. Let, let me give you an example. Okay, Because of your sin and rebellion, each and every sin that you commit, according to the, uh, Jesus' brother James, if you've broken one of the commandments, you're guilty of breaking them all. So, I mean, let's just be kind. We'll just narrow down the, God's commandments to ten, the ten commandments. So each sin that you commit... Each sin is multiplied times 10, because every time you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. So each sin has a a magnification level of 10. You commit one, you've committed 10. So each second that ticks by that you do not love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, each second that ticks by, each microsecond of your existence where you are not fully 100% loving God, you are not only guilty of breaking the first commandment, but the other nine. You are an idolater, an adulterer, a liar, a thief, a coveter. You get what I'm saying here? If you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking them all. So now let's tally up the damage here. Okay, with each sin that you commit, it's magnified times 10. Each sin, magnified times 10. Your debt is so huge that it's like racking up a personal debt of $3 trillion. Okay, now to make matters worse, I mean, you can try to work this off, but the problem is is that um, your employment history has been really spotty and nobody will hire you. Uh, from time to time, you get some part-time work, and that's about it. And you got the debt collector calling you on the phone daily and sometimes hourly, bugging you, wanting to know when you're going to at least make a payment on the interest. Okay? That's how dire your situation is. It isn't that you were at a restaurant and somebody picked up the tab for you. It's that you know they're going to come and get you because you owe $3 trillion and the interest on that every day, you don't, you, 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 there's nothing, there's no work that you could do. There's no work that you can do. There's no job that you can get, no education that you can have that will get you to a position to where you can even begin to make payments on the interest on this thing. Oh, and the principal keeps getting worse and worse and worse by the day because every single day that you sin, every sin that you commit is magnified times 10. That's how bad your situation is. Now, Christ steps into this situation, and he is punished for you. The punishment that you were fearing, the punishment you know that you deserve because of this debt that you've racked up. You are living in, under the stress of knowing that you, these people are calling you and that if they, it, 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 I mean, you're, you're even careful about where you go because you don't want to be seen because if you're seen, they're going to come and get you and take you away and lock you up, right? 
They're going to take away your house, your car, everything that you own. And that's just to start off with. And then they're going to throw you in prison until you pay every last dime. The problem is you can't earn anything in prison, right? Every single sin magnified times 10 adds to the principle. Christ steps into this situation. The perfect, sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes your place. Your debt, your sin is laid on him. And everything that you deserved is exactly what he takes. And then some. He's scourged, beaten, punched in the face, spat on, forced to carry his own cross, nailed to the cross, hands and feet pierced. And he sits there in agony. And he's in thirst. And even God himself turns his back on him. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet that forsaking that Jesus went through is your forsaking for you. And then he dies. He drinks down the dregs of the wrath of God for your debt and mine. You, there's nothing you could have done to pay that thing off. Not in a billion trillion lifetimes could you have begun to approach what was necessary to pay that debt. And yet, on the cross today is a note. And the note says, debt paid in full, and it was for you, because of your sin, your wickedness, your treachery, your lies, your deceit, your despising of God and his word, your adulteries, your lying, your thieving, your coveting, all of that was paid for. It's not somebody picking up the tab at the restaurant, it's somebody basically paying a $3 trillion debt that you racked up all on your own. And don't ask how that is even possible because you and I both know exactly how that's possible. Just look at your life in light of God's law. So this is the most miserable gospel example I've ever heard in my life. It's taken care of! We're not extraordinary because of our talent. We're not extraordinary because of our looks. Thank God for that. We're not extraordinary because of, of our ability. We are extraordinary because of a God who created us, loved us, an extraordinary God who's gone the distance for us, who stands by us, who is always with us. So there you go. That was um, Kevin Gerald's uh, first sermon, supposedly, on the book of Ephesians. Yep, cheap Osteen knockoff, complete with a false gospel. And that's, I mean, this is the kind of guy that uh, Stephen Furtick wants to come 
teach and preach at his uh, Code Orange revival. What is this a revival of? Narcissism? What, I mean, what, what are we going to revive at the Code Orange revival? Kevin Gerald being one of the speakers? We're not going to be reviving a sense of guilt and shame for the sins that we've committed against a holy and just God. We're not going to revive basically rejoicing and reveling in the good news that Christ has paid it all for us on the cross. We're not going to hear about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It sounds to me like what's going to be revived there at the Code Orange Revival is full-blown, me-centered narcissism, as if we don't already have enough of that as it is. We don't need to revive that. We need to stick a stake in its heart. Unbelievable. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, this is listener-supported radio. If you'd like to email me, if you'd like to support us. That means we truly depend upon your gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Click on one of them and please support this uh, this outreach so that we can keep doing what we're doing. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.